Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to the third and final part of our Firm Foundations series. You are listening to The Firm Foundations, The Lord God, by Rev. Peter Yonker. This morning we come to the last of our three-part series, our three-part sermon series called Firm Foundations. Uh, During this time of uncertainty, we've been trying to get our feet on our true and certain foundations. And to do that, we've focused on Genesis 1 through 3. Because Genesis 1 through 3 ask foundational questions, ask and answer foundational questions that we all face in our life. Questions like, who is God? What is the nature of a human being? And what is the nature of the natural world out there? Those are questions that every human being faces. Two weeks ago, we looked at that question about the nature of the natural world. Last week, we talked about the nature of human beings. And today, we're going to talk about what may be the most important question of them all. Who is this God whom we serve? And to do that, I'm going to read mostly from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Now, all of Genesis 1 through 3 address this question, obviously. Who is God is the central question of all those chapters. But I can't read all of it. So I'm just going to read selected bits, and we'll follow along. Now, uh, I'm also going to reference, as I've been doing throughout this sermon series, some of the Babylonian stories and the Babylonian myths, because Genesis 1 through 3, in the form we have it now, is reacting to those myths and pushing against them and their claims about God. And and that's important, not just because it happened when this text was first written down years and years and years ago. It's also important because those old Babylonian myths, even though people may not believe those myths anymore today, they still represent the way people think and the way people believe today. Let's go to the text. Let's read Genesis 2, and I'm going to start at verse 8. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 to begin with. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now we'll skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I'm going to skip down to the beginning of chapter 3, Genesis 3, verse 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you shall surely die. 
You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. I think you know that after, after they ate the tree and disobeyed God, sin sort of comes into the world. The harmony of creation is broken. Evil gets a foothold. Things fall apart. God finds out. And here's how chapter 3 ends, starting at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat of it forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a, flash, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Who is God? If I had to choose one word to describe how the Babylonians would answer that question, if I had to choose one word to describe how the Babylonians thought of their gods, it would be capricious. The Babylonians had, of course, a lot of gods, and, and the way they viewed their gods, they saw them as unpredictable, capricious, prone to outbursts, prone to sudden changes, random. And if you read the, the Babylonian stories and the Babylonian myths, like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish, examples of this randomness, of, of these, these, these sort of moody outbursts, there are all through the stories. For example, the goddess Ishtar, one of the goddesses in the, in the pantheon, looks down from her lofty perch from heaven and she sees the human warrior Gilgamesh and she likes what she sees. Gilgamesh, she says, won't you be my boyfriend? Gilgamesh is not so sure. He patiently explains to Ishtar that she has a poor track record with men, which is true. And he further explains that he's not so sure that he as a human being wants to get involved with a goddess. I, I'm just not ready for a relationship at this time, Gilgamesh says in so many words. Ishtar is not happy. She flies into a rage for being rejected and she sends this cosmic bull of heaven to attack Gilgamesh. And the result is that Gilgamesh's best friend gets killed and Gilgamesh is devastated. Ishtar is capricious, unpredictable. Another example. In the Enuma Elish, 
you have the story of the great god Apsu. Apsu and Tiamat are, are sort of the, the mother and father god of the, all the Babylonian gods. They're, they're, they're the parents and they have kids and they have grandkids who are all gods, but they're up on the top of the pyramid. But there's some generational conflict between Apsu and Tiamat and the rest of the Babylonian gods. And, and the reason is that, um, especially the grandkids, they like to party. And they make tons and tons of noise and Apsu and Tiamat cannot get a night's sleep because the grandkids are making so much noise. And they're absolutely worn out. They're so tired because of all the noise that their grandkids are making. And so Apsu gets so fed up that he, he hits upon a solution. He decides he's just going to wipe out his grandkids. And then at last he'll get some shut-eye. Here's what it says. Their behavior, these grandkids, has become displeasing to me. And I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy them and break up their way of life that silence may reign and we may sleep. The grandkids hear about his plan and they turn the tables and they end up killing Apsu. Unpredictable, capricious. When you read these stories, these myths of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, you feel like you're, you're watching an episode of Survivor except with dragons and magic spells. And you may say, well, this is all ridiculous kinds of belief. This is primitive. Why would anybody believe in gods like this? And more, more to the point, why would anyone ever worship gods like that who were capricious and mean and who would turn on you? But don't judge the Babylonians too harshly. There's a good reason why they believe what they did about the gods. Their view of these unpredictable gods matched their experience of life. The Babylonians had this pantheon of unpredictable and capricious gods because that matched their experience of daily life. They would spend a whole season planting a crop, watering it, the crop would be growing, it would just be about ready for harvest time, and all of a sudden a random storm would come across the sea, and the hail would thunder down, and the crop would be wiped out, and there would be hunger. Or a man would spend most of his life building a house for his family, putting stone upon stone. He makes this beautiful place where his family can be safe, and then an earthquake strikes, and the house falls, and people die, and his work is gone. Where the young mother gets married, has her first kid, her husband loves her, they're happy together, and all of a sudden he gets an infectious disease, and in three days he goes from strong to dead, and she is destitute. As the Babylonians went through life, they found themselves buffeted by powers they could not control or could not understand. They had these circumstances that just knocked them upside the head, and their explanation was, well, this must be the outbursts, the temper tantrums of these capricious, unpredictable gods. These are the whims of gods. Even if you don't share what they believe, can you at least understand where they're coming from? I think you can. Anyone who's ever lost a loved one suddenly to a brain aneurysm, any out there who've had someone who was very dear to them, someone they leaned on, someone they needed in their life, who got cancer 
at a time that made no sense and was taken away. Anyone who has been whacked upside the head by life and its circumstances can at least understand why the Babylonians believed what they did. The Bible is not deaf to the apparent randomness of life. Psalm 90, one of our favorite psalms, we read it here uh, on New Year's Eve, I think every single year. It has that, that beginning, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout the generations. It's this great celebration of God's faithfulness from year to year to year. But in the middle of that psalm, the psalmist has a little bit of an outburst. Verse 15, he says, Lord, please make us glad for as many years as you've afflicted us. Do you remember that line? Lord, make us glad for as many years as you afflicted us. It's an honest sentiment. It's the words, the prayer of someone who's been knocked upside the head by life and can't quite figure it out. And of course, Job has a similar cry. Job has been knocked around by life, and he goes so far as to directly accuse God of being an arbitrary God. He says this in chapter 9. He says, when a scourge brings sudden death, when sudden death just sort of comes into life, God mocks the despair of the innocent. When the land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds his judges. If it's not God who's doing it, then who? Job says in his anger. His experience of randomness, of unpredictability in life is a universal human experience. And some people deal with it by imagining arbitrary gods, capricious gods. Other people simply give up on the notion of God altogether. Which brings us to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells a different story and has a very different answer to that fundamental question. And I want to share with you what we learn about our God and who he is. I don't think Genesis 1 explains everything about why and the storms and everything in our life, but it does give us a firm picture of who our God is in the middle of these storms. And I want to share with you that picture by showing you two details, two physical details from this story which reveal to us some essential foundational things about the character of our God. And the first detail is the name. If you are paying close attention, and if you, you know, reread it later today, you will notice that throughout uh, chapters 2 and chapters 3, chapter 1 is a little different, but throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis, God is always referred to by the same title. He's always called the Lord God. The Lord God planted a garden. The Lord God spoke to the man. The Lord God spoke to the woman. The Lord God made man out of the dust of the ground. He's always called the Lord God. And if you really pay attention, you will notice that the word Lord in your English translation, and this is true in most English translations, is written in all caps. Now, in, 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 uh, in our modern world, all caps means yelling. That's not what it means here. All caps means that there's the same Hebrew word behind that English translation. Okay? Anytime you see all capital Lord, there's the same Hebrew word behind that English translation. I, I wonder if you know what it is. It's the divine name. It's Yahweh. 
right? The covenantal name. The Lord God, Yahweh God. That's what he's called throughout chapters 2 and 3. There's one exception to that. And that's when the serpent talks. I never noticed that until this week. But the serpent does not use the divine title. The serpent just calls our God, God. He uses the word Elohim, which is a more generic word. If you were talking about a Babylonian God, you'd call him an Elohim. Now, why does the serpent do that? Why doesn't the serpent use the divine title? Because if you look at what the serpent's doing in this passage, he's trying to convince Eve, he's suggesting to Eve very subtly that the God who created her is like the Babylonian gods, that he's arbitrary, that he's capricious, that he doesn't really care about her, that he's just manipulating her. Did God really say you couldn't eat any fruit from any of the trees? God knows that you will know what he knows and that your eyes will be opened. See what he's doing there? God is against you. And of course he doesn't want to use the divine name when he's working with Eve and trying to manipulate her because what does Yahweh mean? It means I am who I am and I will be who I will be. That's the opposite of arbitrary, right? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's not capriciousness. That's stability. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am not unpredictable. I am Yahweh. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am not unpredictable. I am the Lord. My promises to you are steady. They will not fail. My plans for you cannot be thwarted. I am the Lord. I protect justice and righteousness until the end of the earth, and nothing will change that. I am the Lord. My love for you does not come and go. It is steadfast. And my steadfast love endures not for a week, not for a day, forever. The evil one is still playing that same game that the serpent played with Eve with us, trying to convince us that God doesn't care and that he's arbitrary. Are you sure that God really loves you? And I know you've heard that your whole life, but does he really love you? I mean, look at everything that's going on. He doesn't care about you, a little voice says in her head. The name of the Lord speaks to us a far better and far truer word than that little voice. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, my plans for you, my purposes for you shall never fail. I love you. The first detail is the name. The second detail is the clothes. At the end of the story, after our sin had destroyed the harmony of creation and made it into this dangerous and chaotic place, the Lord does something wonderful and something very kind for Adam and Eve. He clothes them. He clothes them against the cold and the danger that their sin created, and he clothes them to cover the shame that their sin brought upon themselves. It's, it's an act of kindness. It's an act of amazing grace. 
And it's also a really intimate act, an act of deeply personal connection. If you've ever clothed a small child, maybe your own child, maybe a niece or a nephew, you'll know what an intimate and loving act that is. Your kids come out of the bath, and you grab them, and you whisk them up in a towel, and you towel them off, and you set them on the bed, and you get out the footy pajamas, you know, the ones with the feet on them, and you tuck them in, and you zip it up, and you give them a hug, and all the while you're chattering with them, and they're chattering with you, and then you set them off, and they run down the hall. It's such an intimate, such a warm, such a loving, such a connecting thing. Of course, when the Lord dresses Adam and Eve, it's less like a parent dressing a toddler, and it's probably a little bit more like a caregiver dressing a dependent and weak adult whom she loves. A wife knows that her husband is slipping deep into dementia and his weakness is starting to take over every part of his body. And so even though it's a lot of work for her and even though her own hands are, are pained with arthritis, she helps him get dressed and do the things he needs to do day after day after day. She pulls on his socks for him, helps him get his arms through his sleeves, helps him do up all the buttons, Sometimes he's so confused that he forgets what's going on and what, the, what are we doing today, dear? And, and who, who, where, what's, who, who are you? What, what are we doing? She patiently tells him over and over again why he's here, what's going on. Sometimes he gets belligerent. Sometimes he gets angry, and that's especially when she puts limits on him. Like when she says, no, honey, put down the keys, you can't drive. Or yes, you have to take this medication, it's very important. He sometimes starts to fight her, sometimes starts to get angry. But she patiently holds on to him, patiently gives him the same message day after day after day. I'm your wife, I love you, this is for your best. Don't be afraid, I'm here, I'm not going to abandon you. Her reassurances are new every morning. When God clothes Adam and Eve, it's that patient, painful, sacrificial love like a caregiver for a dependent adult. It's that kind of sacrificial intimacy. And that image of God clothing us tells us not only that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, not only that he's this great cosmic being who doesn't move, but that he's our God who loves us in that deeply personal, sacrificial way. His story, of course, will not be the last time that God clothes his people. It won't stop with Adam and Eve throughout Scripture. Uh, the whole story, in some way, is the story of human beings falling down and not knowing what's going on and getting confused and God picking them up and cleaning them off and clothing them and setting them down the path again. And finally, God himself, of course, will come to earth in the flesh to help us, to be with us, to care for us, to clothe us. But we will lash out at him 
Instead of letting him clothe us, we will grab him and we will strip him. We will, we will strip him naked and we will beat him and we will nail him on a cross of shame. And on that cross, Jesus will take on all our sin and all our shame and, and all our fear and all our anger. He'll take it into himself and he will rise from the dead and he will clothe us with new life. In his resurrection, through his Holy Spirit, he will clothe us with life everlasting, clothed in righteousness divine, as the song says. And because of this great act of clothing us in his own righteousness, at the end of the story, we will join that, that crowd that John sees in Revelation 7, those people from every nation, tribe, and language who are waving palm branches and who are clothed in white robe and who are standing before the throne of God and the Lamb and are praising him. I do not understand all the things that come into the lives of good people. I don't understand why life sometimes whacks us upside the head. I can't explain every incidence of awful things that happen in this world, but I know whom I have believed. I know where my hope lies. I know who my God is. He is my cornerstone, my solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. He is the one who every time I fall down, every time I get confused, every time I get angry, picks me up, dresses me and gets me on the road and he does it every single day, morning after morning after morning. This is my God, this is your God, and blessed are those who take refuge in him. Amen. Lord God, we thank you that from the very, the very beginnings of your book, Lord, from the very beginnings, you show us that we are people who easily get confused and lost, and that you are a God who never gives up. Lord, that hope is at the center of our lives. And we come to the cross every day because that cross is a sign that you will never give up on us and that you will hold on to us no matter what. So Lord, we come again to you today in the midst of this storm, the storms of our lives, and, and, and we put our hope in you and, and we let you dress us and we give you every part of who we are. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.